This episode of The Way Home Podcast is brought to you by the Gospel for Life series of books from ERLC and Lifeway. Visit thegospelforlifeseries.com. Well, I'm glad to have on my podcast today, Kate Shellnut, who's the Associate Online Editor at Christianity Today, a great journalist who has been doing journalism for quite a while. She's previously worked for the Houston Chronicle, and uh, today we're going to talk about her great piece on the Cambodia child sex industry, the kind of the work that Christians have done to uh, combat child trafficking and the, the sex industry, some of the good work that's been done over there. Kate, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. So before we talk about this, I want to talk a little bit about your career and in journalism. So I've known you for quite a while, but I don't know if I've ever got your story. Like what got you into journalism? What Was it something you were interested in growing up or something you started doing late in life? What's your story on that? I think uh, I've always wanted to be a writer and storyteller and a talker. And that comes from being a Navy brat growing up. So I was always in the position of meeting new people. And I was like a pen pal early on, like a young letter writer. So I kind of adopted those skills really early. And as I went through high school and college, I always knew that journalism was kind of where I wanted to channel them. And I had this uh, fascination about religion that I thought was an academic or studious fascination that ended up being a call from God um, to faith. So I thought this curiosity I had about all the religions of the world was just for the sake of having something to write about. But early in my adulthood, a little bit into grad school, uh, I was in my like mid-20s in Chicago, and I came across a church that I was writing about, and I think God spoke to me right there and said, this is actually the truth you've been mm. looking for all along. So within a couple years of that, I came to faith. Um, so God's both like led me to a career, I think, and to Him through journalism. So, so do you have a Christian home or Christian background or influence growing up or religion at all? Was that a thing growing up? I think it also ties to the military upbringing. We went to chapel on base, Mm -hmm. but it's such a generic form of Christianity. You get whatever chaplain is stationed there. Mm -hmm. So it could be a Seventh-day Adventist. It could be a Methodist. It could Mm -hmm. be a Baptist. And so I had this really vague background of Christianity through early elementary school, but it wasn't the kind of thing that my parents talked about a ton at home. And I definitely didn't have the kind of deep convictions that that I think like a lasting faith was built on. Mm. So kind of a vague upbringing, but at this point, I think I'm the, the Christian of my family. <laughs> so you pursue journalism. Did you know like in college or grad school that, like, you knew you were going to be a writer, but what kind of turned you toward doing journalism and particularly the the sort of religion beat, uh, for lack of a better term? I was a religion and journalism double major, Mm. and people would always ask, what do you think you want to do with that? And it's really the most boring, straightforward answer that I always wanted to write about religion. I think that um, it intersects with so many different areas of life. Like as as people of faith know, like this isn't just the Sunday morning thing. And it was fascinating and really encouraging to see people who had such deep convictions about about their lives, about where they mm-hmm. find meaning. And ultimately, it's led me when I was at the Houston Chronicle. I was writing 
sports stories and entertainment stories and lifestyle stories and gardening stories, mm. all that tied to religion. So I think it's the richest area to write about. And it's what I love talking to people about. My husband jokes that uh, I got lost at a party he took me to once. And I said, oh, you never came and found me. And he said, I knew there was a Mormon at that party and that you would pull him aside at some point. And sure enough, I had an hour long <laughs> conversation with my husband's Mormon friend. So I, I'll get into these conversations just on my own. It's yeah. fascinating. And yeah, it's just where my mind goes. You know, it's, it's interesting because I've hung around a lot of people doing religion reporting and I have felt that religion reporters are some of the best reporters, uh, people that like, this is their beat just because there's, you know, religion is so complicated. There's so many different religions in America. And so you really have to know your stuff, right? Yeah. Knowing your stuff and then at the same time, knowing enough to to be smart, to carry on a conversation, to make these observations, but also being like totally humble because none of us are experts or theologians. And there is this element that's like mysterious and super personal. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot that you just have to defer to people and hear them mm -hmm. put it in their own words. Were there any people that you read when you were studying journalism and getting started in your career that you're like, I, I would like to be like that person, that uh, journalist or that reporter? The two I followed were Kathleen Falsani, who used to be at the mm -hmm. Chicago Sun-Times, and she wrote a handful of books, and then Manya Brashear. And I was lucky enough that I was able to kind of apprentice or mentor under Manya. We were in a class where it was just her and me. And so... That yeah. was like the most formative time that I had to follow her around yeah. as a reporter and to have her give feedback on my own writing and coverage. So that crash course with her, I think, really solidified the foundation mm -hmm. of my career. And she's still like a great mentor and resource to me. When you think about being a Christian and being a journalist, how does your Christian faith shape the way you do journalism? I've been lucky at Christianity Today that the notion that, that we have at the magazine of beautiful orthodoxy mm -hmm. has spelled out a lot of things that I've aimed to do in a more cohesive way that I don't know that I could articulate on my own. But so beautiful orthodoxy is about the pursuit of the good and the beautiful and the true in our work. So obviously as a reporter, truth is like a huge motivator for me that mm -hmm. I think being accurate and true in reporting is like a way, is a, a principle that I hope to have in my, in my work, but also that I want it to go towards a greater good, that this information isn't just for the sake of it, but that there is a redeeming quality about it that um, I'm bringing to light if it's bad news, something um, for the hopes of, of preventing it from happening in the future, that I see beauty in the way that people live out their faith, and I want to tell those stories. So this idea that that all that we do, even as journalists, even in a daily blog post, even in photography, that it's all tied to the way that God works and unfolds His kingdom in the world. It's been great to have that structure around. Mm -hmm. I really like the beautiful orthodoxy, and I love the the kind of fearless way that CT does good journalism. You know, sometimes Christians, you know, we talk about being pursuing the truth, but sometimes we don't like where the truth leads, you know, because Christians are messy, churches are messy, Christian organizations are messy at times. Talk a little bit about what it's like to, to be a journalist uh, in an era where, you know, the media for good or bad or whatever is kind of looked on with distrust in some respects. What has that been like? What's that experience like? 
Yeah, I will say we have gotten some of the backlash of the fake news moment. Mm -hmm. And even before that, there were people who would question different types of coverage, why we covered a certain story and not others, why we do sometimes reveal um, or promote stories based on a pastor's personal life. Both you and I know, anyone who's involved in the church knows that um, men of prominence um, in pastoral roles have fallen for financial reasons and for Mm -hmm. affairs and for all those things. And yes, we, we write about those sometimes, but whenever I'm met with those challenges, I'm happy that I have a thoughtful defense of why, that really none of our editorial decisions are made in a knee-jerk reaction of, oh, this happened, we have to cover it and just get it out there the fastest, that really every time we cover a story, even a breaking news story, especially a breaking news story, we have thought out why we're covering something and why we're covering it in a certain way. So when someone questions the selection, the the person that we're featuring, the headline that we wrote, we can say, here's why we thought through it. And here's why, mm. you know, we haven't covered every pastor who's ever had an affair, but we, we believe that there's going to be, there's a ne- necessity to get this information out there. And we think that there's a potential good to come from exposing the bad. And it is a challenge that I don't know the answer to in terms of people not agreeing with different spheres of authority uh, that I think for a time I assumed that that a lot of us saw the same things as mm-hmm. this is a confirmation because this authority said it or verified it or these studies showed it. And now there's a lot more skepticism towards that and we don't share a central authority, which has... I don't know, actually made me feel a lot more that a lot of the human authorities that I thought were trustworthy, when they're not trustworthy by others, I realized how infallible all authority is outside mm. of God's. There really is a uh, seemingly, people are talking about a crisis of authority now where because it seems like our major institutions have, have failed us in many ways in the last several decades, whether it's the church or the government or media or medicine, any anyone it seems like the crisis of authority to where like anybody that is has credentials is almost looked down by some as being the elitist and, you know, part of some secret cabal or something Uh, that kind of affects in some ways, the way that you do your work as a journalist, right? Exactly. And you, you hit a couple of the hot ones. Uh, We had a cover story a couple of years ago about um, vaccines. And that was one where, you know, as journalists, we're trained to cite the medical professionals, and there are people, readers, who have reason to be skeptical of medical professionals who, who don't see them as the authority. So it's about knowing our audience and knowing what sources are going to be seen the most trustworthy to them, and that'll, that'll also be in the political realm, like what government officials, and then also in the evangelical realm, which leaders are they actually listening to and trusting, and which leaders, if we quoted, that they would think that's not the leader I identify with. So some of it's knowing um, what we believe to be objective truth, because obviously we believe objective truth, or very close to it, exists in this world, mm-hmm. and then also where what sources we can use to present information that would be most trustworthy to the people who are reading our magazine and looking to us for information.
How do busy pastors answer difficult questions on cultural issues from people in their congregation? Well, we've partnered with Lifeway Christian Resources to produce a series of short, readable books that help the average Christian apply the gospel to the culture. These are great resources for groups, for church libraries, for personal discipleship, and great for families as they discuss these issues around the dinner table. You can get the first three in this series, The Gospel and Same-Sex Marriage, The Gospel and Racial Reconciliation, and The Gospel and Religious Liberty by visiting the website, thegospelforlifeseries.com. So I want to talk about this story, the cover story for CT in May, I believe. Is it the May issue? It's the June issue. The June issue, issue. I'm but sorry. But it, it goes up a couple weeks but early, I get it. so that's why. It, it yep. comes in May. And I actually read the print version. I'm, I love CT and I want to just stop and encourage people to subscribe. But it's about Cambodia's child sex industry uh, and the fact that it's dwindling and Christians over there are somewhat responsible for this. So what first turned you on to the story? So there was a report from the International Justice Mission Mm -hmm. that had come out. It was several months before I made my trip and that they were claiming these declines in um, children involved in sexual exploitation in the commercial sector. So basically um, kids being sold in brothels, um, that they had numbers that were down to less than 1%, that were down to 1% and 2%, whereas they had at one time been 10, 15, 20, 30% of all women available for sex would have been these children. Mm. And so a little bit of that as a journalist is kind of, I have to have like a skeptical, is that true? As much as you would like to celebrate right away. So we really wanted to take a look at the work that led to to the studies that they claim and to hear from some of the other people working in this sphere, the government, fellow organizations, mm-hmm. some of the police involved, the shelters, and say, to what extent are these decreases really happening? To what extent is the trafficking industry moving underground? And you see a little bit of both once I did make it over there. Mm. So uh, you went over there, and I'm curious when you're doing reporting a story like this, are you thinking, I need to interview people involved in this work or what are some of your, what are you thinking when you're, when you're going over there? So I, I wanted to hear from some of the biggest players involved and some of the people who have been doing it the longest. There's a group called Chab Dai, which has been involved for well over a decade and they are a network of all trafficking agencies that are doing different things so that they can be sharing information and not be redundant. So through Chab Dai, I was a, and they collect research too. So that's the other thing as a journalist, it was great to see they're doing the, um, the only study in the world that tracks what happens to these girls after they've been rescued. You know, what are the long-term prospects for survivors? Mm-hmm. Um, so that was amazing to have them as a resource and for them to be able to point to who are the biggest players here and who has made the, the biggest difference. And a lot of it, it's funny, like we, we love the rescue stories and I think that's a mm-hmm. big part. But what I found was like the reason that change is taking place systematically across how Cambodia is functioning is not because they keep rescuing girls, because of course um, that supply would just keep coming. Mm -hmm. It's because they've made these like 
actually boring legal changes to how police operate. Mm. Um, so I, I wanted to be able to, to both show kind of the legal side and understand the process of the arrests and how social workers uh, entered into the system for the first time, but also to, to hear from victims because like the story is about them too. And that was one that I, I had never interviewed um, children who are victims in this way. And obviously, anytime you interview children, there's an additional mm-hmm. level of sensitivity. And anytime you interview victims, so that was the thing I prayed the most about and I prepared the most about. I read a lot of guides to to how to approach kids about this and how mm-hmm. to do it. And I think it ended up being pretty good because both of the times I spent almost all day with a group of girls. And at the end of the day, I had the option to invite them and they were able to share what they wanted to share and had no pressure to share anymore. But that was a big challenge to it. Uh, mm. And there are a lot of different aspects that I wanted to see. Yeah, one of the one of the really fascinating parts of the story is just the multi-layered effort to stop trafficking. So you mentioned, you know, there's people think of IJM, you know, rightly as kind of going in and making these raids and rescue of of kids but also the work that they do to prevent having to do future raids you know to to be uh, not just defensive but offensive and trying to change some of the the legal structure uh, in Cambodia and then also you talk about the aftercare of, of, of victims and so it seems like you have those three components that are really important for for Christians to be involved in exactly and IJM, Obviously, the the J stands for justice, so they're mm-hmm. very focused on the justice system, and they're continuing to adjudicate some of the cases that they had acquired, but they've actually um, been so successful or see their success enough that they're moving out of sex trafficking and totally transitioning into labor trafficking, mm-hmm. trying to apply what they've learned in one sphere to this other problem, which is mm-hmm. orders of magnitude bigger huge, huge numbers of people enslaved in brick factories and domestic workers and on ships and stuff. So they're trying to do lessons learned and and equip this the system to handle all these other cases because of the success. They feel like they've trained enough people who are now working in the government to be able to handle the sex trafficking cases essentially without their help. Mm. Meanwhile, this other organization, Agape International Missions, they're continuing to really focus on the investigation and raid side, and a lot of it is becoming much more sophisticated. It's actually because IJM and earlier efforts by this group AIM were so successful that you can't, as a white person, knock on the door of a brothel and come in and say, you know, show me your youngest girls, because they're so suspicious now that these people are investigators, that it really takes this high level of investigation to get to get out the criminals who are doing the seediest work, which would be like selling virgins, selling girls who are maybe 10 and younger, that you would have to be a regular person who's there all the time, a Cambodian person, and that they would have to scope out where these places are. So they're working for months and months at a time to get, it's a, it's a smaller number of these people, but they're still trying to get the few that are weeding out underage girls. And they'll, they'll even rotate them between locations. Mm. So you, you can't know when's a good time to raid um, a location. So they're kind of doing still the underground investigative work to, to help the, the remaining institutions that are still um, mm. selling these these children. Were, were you surprised? You know, when I read your piece, 
I was surprised at, um, I guess, the strength or the health of the, the church in Cambodia. I mean, just given, you know, the trauma that that country has gone through uh, after the Khmer Rouge sort of purging of, of much of their population. I think you you say like 20% of their population was, was killed during their uh, campaign of terror. And so were you surprised at this kind of the strength of the church there? Absolutely. This is like a against all odds scenario. For one, Protestant Christianity hasn't even been in Cambodia for a hundred years. Mm. So this is, they had their first missionary sent there in the twenties. Wow. And those missionaries labored for decades and saw maybe a thousand, a few thousand people come to Christ. And just as they were starting to grow, there was this genocide that forced all the Christians out of the country and killed many of them because religious people were targeted, obviously, mm. under communism. And then um, for a long time while they were the Civil War raged on that they didn't even let missionaries back in the country till 1991. Wow. So a lot of these organizations haven't had like the long legacy that we might even have in other developing countries um, that they've really gone with the punches and that like God has used a small remnant to grow. And the fact that they've been able to make the, this kind of impact on the, the justice level, on the trafficking fight, and that they that it's won them favor with the government, that they can worship mostly openly and don't have the same persecution that you might see in other places um, in the region of Southeast Asia, mm-hmm. that they really feel like the all the Christians I talked to had a sense of this is a really special moment and we have to like take advantage of it, that we don't know when the government might change its mind. We don't know when when people might turn against us, but for now we're really growing and we're doing good work and we just want to like keep it up. That's really great. I mean, is there a um, large presence of like, say, NGOs or um, like American missionaries or Western missionaries? Is there a, a a view? Do they do they welcome missions from Western countries? Is, are they skeptical of them? What what is that relationship like? So I think that they're right at a turning point or a tipping point in terms of the influence of foreign Western missionaries and NGOs turning towards like taking over those efforts for themselves. Mm. So for a long time, the church planners, the people, you know, doing Bible translation, the people going out into the villages, a lot of those efforts might be led or headed up by white folks from the outside, by denominational Mm -hmm. or, or organizational leaders. And basically since the 90s, when religion started to to come back to Cambodia, that's when they opened a Bible school in Phnom Penh, and there are several different campuses and Bible schools in major cities. So now that they're able to train up their own educated leaders and that those leaders have had the experience and theological training, that they're able to start and take over things that they used to rely on outsiders Mm. for. But at the same time, I mean, because of the genocide, a very obvious Um, impact is that there's a huge generation gap. Mm. So basically they have a lot of very old leaders or not even a lot, a handful, a few significant older leaders, people who came to faith in refugee camps, but maybe had no Christian upbringing experience, you know, planted a church from Mm. nothing and didn't have the education. And then they have these younger leaders coming up um, who, who do have the training and upbringing, but there's really nobody kind of in between who have done that 
adequate level of building. I would say like people in their late forties or fifties, like that's a, Hmm. that's the area that they're they're missing. So I think as the, as the years go on, they're filling those things out and that there's going to be less and less reliance. Even, even IJM and AIM had, I would say like fewer than 10 foreign staffers that Hmm. I met and everybody else was native Christians that they had hired or people they hire who become Christians through just wanting a job to translate or drive or help out. And then, um, Hmm. Good to know. Do you sense a receptivity to the Christian gospel there, or is there what is the what is the attitude of, of of the people there toward the church? I think I would say the thing that to be thankful for that the church is thankful for is that there are a few official barriers in terms of like the stigma of Christianity isn't going to get you penalized or beaten up or um, fined or something like it would in other places. But in terms of the cultural barriers, they're pretty significant. There are dozens of Buddhist holidays that are all observed by the government and that involve giving to idols, going back to the temple, like all of public life essentially is oriented, family life too, is oriented around Buddhism. So for people to become Christians, even when they hear the good news, even when they feel the spirit pulling, even when they're starting to believe something's true, there's just so many reasons for them to say, but I still want to be able to do this holiday with my family. Mm. And I still want to be able to go to the temple. And I don't want to tell my parents that I'll be baptized. That was a big a big point of tension that a lot of people would become Christians, but were afraid to tell their parents that they got baptized mm. as Christians because that felt like right an outward sign. So it's there's still a lot of resistance just in terms of kind of what you have to give up to be able to follow Christ in this context. It's mm. a really good word. Well, Kate, I really appreciate this story. This you can tell that you worked hard on this and there's when i was reading through it i'm just thinking to myself you know the hours that you put in traveling and then writing and it's really good journalism and i really appreciate your work if you are not subscribed to christianity today it's a great magazine they do the kind of uh work in journalism like this that really you don't find at other places so uh, really appreciate it are you working on anything right now any anything you can talk about Yeah, so we're trying to brainstorm where we want to go next, um, that we're trying to do a couple of international stories a year, and it looks like uh, one of my colleagues might be headed to Nigeria, and I'm trying to see if there's a way for me to make it to Russia um, as my next trip. Uh, But that'll be be way off in the future, but just in terms of, of international coverage, that those are some things on our hopefully on our horizon, God willing. That's really good. Well, thank you for your great work and thank for joining me today. I appreciate it. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to the Way Home Podcast. If you've enjoyed this conversation, please let us know by writing a review on iTunes. You can catch previous episodes on danieldarling.com. The Way Home is produced by Gary Lancaster and scheduling by Marie Delft. The Way Home is a production of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention.